0: Welcome to the Michael Slate Show. I'm your host, Michael Slate. We have a special year end show today, looking back at the year past and looking forward to the challenges of 2022. We're going to present voices from 2021, the Refuse Fascism Year in Review. These are from the final podcast of Refuse Fascism this year. The entire podcast, which is one hour, 30 minutes long, can be found at refusefascism.org or you can find the link on my social media. Also, many of the segments are introduced by Sam Goldman, a volunteer at Refuse Fascism. We'll begin with a look back at the attempted coup on January 6, 2021.
1: We'll start by going all the way back to January 6, the violent culmination of Trump's month-long attempted self-coup. We broadcast an emergency press conference the day after the fascist insurrection. Andy Z, one of the co-initiators, of Refuse Fascism, and host of the r Show, The Revolution Nothing Less Show, introduced the topic of the day.
2: We've just gone through a milestone in US history an attempted self-coup organized by the president, and that is unprecedented. Okay, anyway, for now, and overwhelmingly likely, this coup has been defeated, but the fascist movement that we have been enduring for four years at the highest levels of power in the US and thus of world power will likely be set back for a while, but that may only be a matter of time. We face real danger in the next 13 days and a very stark reality for the whole next period. So the message of today's press conference is that the decent people, all those who are opposed to injustice, who care about and who want to work for the future of humanity, that is in real existential peril and is even in greater peril under the rule of the Trump-Pence fascist regime and whatever formation this fascism might take in the future. Now, at last, people do need to stand up again in appropriate ways in the public square. Before I go further with my remarks, I'm honored to be able to ask the actress and director and activist, Rosanna Arquette, to read the statement, that some of us who are signatories of the Refuse Fascism Pledge to the People of the World issued last night. So I wonder if, Rosanna, you could read that now and then I will make some further comments on the development since.
3: On Wednesday, January 6th, we saw President Trump call forth and unleash fascist mobs to storm the U.S. Capitol. This was an attempt at a coup. It did not succeed this time. But the danger from even a failed coup is to be taken seriously, setting the stage for them to come back sooner or later to reseize power with or without Trump. It leaves a block of elected officials who view and act as if the Biden administration is an illegitimate and an armed street fighting force on call to dominate the public square. They will continue to fight for their white supremacist, xenophobic and patriarchal program and they will continue to undermine the very concept of truth, leaving tens of millions to be susceptible to the calls of demagogues and the vilest conspiracy theories. Trump is still in power. There are 13 days in which he and or his followers present a real and present danger to humanity. The question is, will the decent people make clear our determination act to stop this fascist danger? A united public show of revulsion against Trump and a repudiation of his regime's fascist program through nonviolent, sustained protest and resistance has been overdue for years. Biden won, but the streets and the discourse has been dominated by Trump and his followers to create, to, to see the, the public square, and it has consequences. We saw this yesterday. That's why on Thursday, January 7th at 5 p.m. in cities across the country, Refuse Fascism is calling for a safe, social distance, nonviolent protests. And please wear a mask and masks will be, PPE will be provided. It is time for people to stand up and say no more no to the fascist coup. Trump, pants out now. They lost. They need to pack their bags and go.
2: Thank you, Rosanna. Let me just say this. You know, it does seem that a section, uh, a large section of the people who rule this country have decided to distance themselves now from Trump after yesterday. And like I said, likely that this particular coup d'etat or a self-coup, auto-coup, will be defeated, although it's not over yet. And there's a lot of damage he can do in 13 days. And there's a lot of reason why he should be removed from power right away. But let's just pull the lens back a little bit. We have to look at nearly 150 Republican congressmen, including two leaders of the Republican delegation, along with seven Republican senators, still voted to illegally deprive Biden of office even after that mob had been put down. And an overnight poll cited in the Washington Post claimed that Republican voters surveyed, favored, favored the reactionary rampage by a 45 to 43 percent margin. The fascist organization... And the movements are still forged, and they will be, and they are already, and they will be filled with revenge, and they will now have their martyr, not only in Trump, but in the QAnon woman who was killed in this assault, and they will have a battle cry. Well, we don't have much time for a lot of American history. If those who recall the defeat at the Alamo became a battle cry, remember the Alamo, and we should be cognizant of the possibility and probably the likelihood of remember 2020 will be a rallying cry for these fascist forces for some years to come. Now, you've heard for the press and for others who were watching us for the first time that Refuse Fascism in its name and has said this is fascism. And just very briefly, Refuse Fascism has said that fascism is not just a gross combination of horrific reactionary policies. It is a qualitative change in how society is governed. Fascism foments and relies on xenophobic nationalism, racism, misogyny and the aggressive reinstitution of oppressive traditional values and fascist mobs and threats of violence are unleashed to build the movement and to consolidate power and as we saw yesterday to attempt to seize power back after being after they have lost in a legitimate election. But I think it's important to say that we have to understand that this core is going to continue to exist. There are tens of millions of people in this country who have been led, organized, and shaped in a fascist direction. They have their own media, their schools, their institutions, and they've been conditioned to view all of the people on this call, Black people, Latino people, people of color, Native American people, LGBTQ people, all these people as illegitimate and undeserving of a voice. This is a continuation in a very real sense of the Confederacy. I'll make just two points about that. One, you saw it. You saw those Confederate flags. So yes, along with the American flag and the Trump flag, you saw the Confederate flag there. And then you had Ted Cruz in his remarks, invoking 1876 as a precedent for overturning this election and the deal that was made to deny people the rights that had been won in the Civil War and to begin the betrayal of Reconstruction. So the point of our press conference is to say, there can be no more waiting. There is a need for the decent people to make clear our determination to stop this fascist danger, which has been overdue for years now. And where does this term the decent people come from? It comes from an example in Nazi Germany where a scholar said that in a particular town they could have prevented fascism, but for one thing, after one family had been deported, taken to the camps, a second family stood up and they were taken, Nobody else did anything. He said there was an opportunity then for the decent people to form a united front around it and to oppose this. That's what we need to do. There can be no more waiting. Today, what we saw <laughs> yesterday is the payment for the passivity in the face of Charlottesville, passivity in the face of refugee children ripped from their parents and abandoned in cages passivity in terms of the violent attacks and unanswered defamation of the movement for Black lives. So now we do have to learn our lesson, and now has to be the time to get together in nonviolent, massive numbers, but to stand up now. We have seen over four years, if we simply rely on the normal political processes, they will be squandered and abandoned. That was true in the impeachment when they wouldn't call witnesses, and it will be true here, too.
1: Reverend William H. Lamar IV, pastor of Metropolitan African Methodist Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C., described what was happening in D.C. that day and the days leading up to it.
4: We continue in the words of Langston Hughes to dream a world. So the dreaming of what is possible when human beings together exist in a multi-ethnic, multi-religious Multiracial political economy, something that has yet to fully flower in the United States of America. When the Capitol was stormed, when the coup occurred yesterday, I was at Metropolitan AME Church, the church that I'm pleased to serve. I knew that they were coming because they had come before and defiled our property. I got there at 6 a.m. on yesterday and stayed until our security team begged me to leave. Now, this is interesting. You saw all of the symbolism yesterday, Confederate flags, Trump flags, uh, all of the other symbolism. They raised a cross, and they also put up a noose. And we need to be very clear that they were deploying symbols. They were dispatching symbols to communicate that this, these were the theological and the philosophical, the impetus behind what it is that they were doing. Now, they said that it was about God. They said it was about saving the nation. Uh, They said they flew flags that said Jesus saves. But on yesterday, our chief of security, who is a middle-aged gentleman, good-looking, strong, strapping. He had on his uniform, his vest, his weapon. There was one of the ladies who had come to support Mr. Trump in the coup. She was in a wheelchair. She was being wheeled by him. She stopped in front of him and she said, we are here because we hate niggers. Now, if you pay attention to all that has been said, what Lily said, what Dr. West said, it is very clear that this movement is not so much about liberty, not so much about freedom, not so much
0: about God as it is about fascist leadership and purging undesirables. All right, that was a look back at January 6th, 2021 from Andy Z of Refused Fascism and the Revolution Nothing Less show on YouTube. Actress, director, and activist Rosanna Arquette and Reverend William Lamar IV, pastor of Metropolitan African Methodist Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C. Now we'll hear from Cornell West, revolutionary Christian professor, public intellectual, and activist, speaking about the importance of refus[ed] Fascism. On January 5th, the day before the fascist assault on the
1: Capitol, Sensara Taylor hosted a roundtable titled What is the Lasting Danger of Trump's Attempt to Overturn the Election? Dr. Cornell West spoke about the contributions from refused fascism activists to the movement to stop fascism since the beginning of Trump's term in office and the importance of political clarity about what we've been up against.
5: We, 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 we check checking out and see what's going on in Washington, D.C. Because uh, you think about, you know, the impact of the uh, presence in the New York Times that goes back five years. And then five years later, there it is again. And people think, who is this refused fascism? What what are they talking about fascism? I heard so-and-so talking about, I heard you talk about it, Brother West. You call him a neo-fascist gangster for five years. I think you're going too far. He's not fascist. He's just somebody you disagree with. Hey, get off the crack pipe. <laughs> <laughs> we ain't using this language just haphazardly. And it was really the refused fascist movement in which Revolutionary Communist parties analysis, vision, sacrifice, service, led very much by Sansara in the streets and then with Brother Andy and Carl and then Brother Vakian's theory has really put fascism on the map for the last five years. And that needs to be said. And it's very important. And, and I hope we get this link because I'm going to put this on my Facebook and my, uh, and my Twitter. You know what Beautiful. I mean? So they get a chance to listen to the different voices in this regard, as it relates to both fascism, what happens in the next few days, the relation of religion, prophetic religion to revolutionary struggle, the role of science, all the good stuff, and the wonderful laughter, and a little bit of the cold training arts and uh, Curtis Mayfield and things, and Nina Simone, that we get, we get in there.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. All right, that was Dr. Cornell West. Next, we'll hear from two scholars of fascism commenting on the situation we are now facing. First is American historian, cultural critic, Ruth Ben-Ghiat. She is a scholar on fascism and authoritarian leaders. Then we'll hear from Federico Finkelstein, an Argentinian historian and chair of the history department at the New School for Social Research. They are interviewed by Sam Goldman from Refuse Fascism.
1: In the article, one of the things that you referenced was the data of the percentage of Republicans that continue to support because of these lies in many ways. Yeah. You remind people that more than half of the Republicans' question agreed that January 6th was the work of violent left-wing protester trying to make Trump look bad. And I was wondering, why do you think that is? Why do you think that so many people don't believe their eyes in terms of what they actually saw?
6: You know, the more documentation there is of an event, the more of a challenge and more of a thrill it is to get people to not believe their own eyes. And so I start the piece with Trump speaking to veterans. I forgot what year it was, like 2018 or 19. And he says, what you're seeing and hearing is not what's happening. And this is the ultimate power move of the authoritarian to get people to disbelieve their own critical faculties and lose confidence in their own critical faculties and listen to the leader. So that is going on. The over 30,000 lies that Trump told, and which were amplified by Tucker Carlson and all the other people participating in this, they primed the audience for January 6th. And in fact, I had written an earlier piece for CNN that the big lie, justifiably we focus on, that they pulled off for millions of Republican voters, this total, again, flip the script, that actually Trump won the election. But thousands and thousands of small lies or smaller lies prepared people for the big lie. And that's also how propaganda works. And Trump has been extremely skillful. As you know, I'm no fan of Trump. He's a nightmare, fascist. But he's extremely skillful propagandist and had around himself from the very beginning people like Stephen Bannon and Roger Stone, who have decades of experience with authoritarian propaganda. They literally worked for dictators like Roger Stone and Paul Manafort, or in Bannon's case, they've been studying and practicing far-right propaganda for years. So it's very formidable crew that unleashed a disinformation barrage that's unequaled in American history in its volume. But also Trump and the leader cult, he cultivated people. And so I, I make a big deal in anything I write about January 6th that January 6th was also like a leader rescue operation. And it's very important that at the rally before the assault, he told them that he loved them, that they were special, and that their journey was just beginning. And this is part of the cultivation. You make these subversive people feel special, and then they're going to commit violence on your behalf. But he's been doing this, cultivating them, elevating them into specialness for almost six years, if you count from the beginning of his campaign. So that's enough time to have a public that is more than primed to accept whatever lies are told about January 6th.
1: I was wondering, you know, a lot of people say, well, isn't it time to move on? Yes, he lied, but he's out of power now. And why do we need to keep talking about his lies. Mm. And I was wondering how do Trump's lies still have power now that he is out of office?
6: <clears throat> That's a great question. I certainly encounter Trump fatigue when I give talks. If I'm giving a talk about strong men where I'm talking about all kinds of people, the moment Trump is mentioned, if it's a talk where you're seeing everybody on Zoom, there's like some people that just don't wanna hear it or they start posting in the chat, like, oh, the same old thing. You know, there are many reasons people can want to move on. Some reasons are that they never wanted to leave the seriousness of the threat to democracy. And so indeed, the system did work. We got rid of him and we voted him out. And I often say this at the end of a, what might be a grim talk. <laughs> you know, I say like, we have to hold on to this, that we did something that's unusual. We voted this guy out and under very difficult circumstances with voter suppression and threats and the pandemic, but we did it. And the whole Georgia runoff. So some people, and they could be on the left or the right. They think, okay, it's over. The emergency is over, or it never was really an emergency. It was all exaggerated, what you were saying. And so they, they want to move on. Or they feel it's negative to keep dwelling on this, but we can't. We can't move on because the lies that Trump and company told are still very much determining our environment today. And the lessons of the lawlessness that Trump didn't invent a lot of these things. The GOP was already moving into a far-right party, and that's why they accepted all the things that he did. But I have a essay in Lucid. It's a Substack newsletter, so it's lucid at substack.com. It's called One Nation, Two Political Realities. It's about We have to face the fact that we have a supposedly bipartisan system, and only one <laughs> of the parties is anchored in democracy now. The other is going toward autocracy. It doesn't want to play anymore, the democratic game. And that's the legacy of Trump. And January 6th also, we can't move on when millions of people still think Trump won the election. So it's literally unsolved for all those people, and which will mean they're not done with it. So because they're not done, we can't be done either. We have to be on guard. And in fact, we have to be more on guard than ever could say, people are also exhausted because we've had the pandemic and it's also exhausting to be an activist. So people need a break. So it's such a great question because for myriad reasons, from every political point of view, it indeed can be that right now many Americans are done with it. And I do feel I'm going to keep not being done with it. I'm going to keep talking. But I I have felt in the last month in particular, the fatigue of people who I'm addressing.
7: I mean, these are great questions. These are really important questions. I can answer them in different ways. Certainly Trump, uh, regarding that particular dimension, of uh, the fascist way of lying is extremely explicit. But basically, they all agree. I mean, Hitler, Trump, Mussolini, they all agree that whatever they don't like shouldn't be the truth, even if reality says otherwise. And and not only that, but what makes uh, this fascist way of lying so dangerous as the cases of Mussolini and Hitler demonstrated, and, and I think as the case of Trump demonstrated as well, is that this kind of understanding of the truth, I mean, and, and let's be clear, for, for the fascists or people like Trump, and, and we can talk about this later, that are very much related to fascism, whatever, whatever probably most of us regard as the truth, that is to say, things that are, uh, can be or should be empirically demonstrated, for them, these things are lies. Whatever they regard as things that should be, as opposed to what they are, they will regard them as truth. So basically, it's a radical understanding of lying, because in fact, they don't think they are lying. They believe they are telling us the truth. And the truth is whatever they want it to be. So either they are believing this, uh, or even when they realize that what they say might be untruth, they believe even that is at the service of, a, let's say, wider, larger truth which is not related to the empirical world, because that is the truth of faith. I mean, this is not something that they believe should be demonstrated, but rather something that you have to believe in without proof. And that is faith. That is typical of religion. And what we see in these ideologies is basically a displacement of what is properly religious into what is not, which is properly political. So that's why these are a political religion. What is not a lie, but is a matter of faith in the world of religion becomes a lie in the world of politics. So whatever Trump says is a matter of faith for the followers. And thereby, basically, such a, an irrational statement such as don't believe in what you see kind of makes sense for Trump's followers.
0: This is The Michael Slate Show, and we're listening to 2021, the Refuse Fascism Year of Review from the Refuse Fascism podcast. Now we'll hear from Sansara Taylor, radio host on Pacifica Station's WBAI and WPFW, speaking with actor and activist Rosie O'Donnell and Jason Stanley, professor and author of How Fascism Works.
6: One week ago, when we saw this siege on the Capitol with Confederate flags, with a hangman's gallow, with all the misogyny and hatred for women concentrated in the Proud Boys and, and, and the Christian fundamentalist, Christian fascist movement that was also part of this, the lies, the conspiracy theory, all of this. When you saw this, just take us to what were you thinking and how
8: have you been processing this? What
6: have you been thinking about it in the weeks since then?
8: The first thing I thought was where the hell are the police? And then at that moment, I knew I hadn't heard Trump's speech that morning, right? I hadn't listened to it. I knew he was saying that that date was going to be, uh, you know, a big date for him and his people. But I never in my wildest dreams imagined what I saw. You know, it gave me panic, like so many people who suffer with anxiety, it gave me pure panic. And to see um, our congressmen and senators left unprotected while he held back police and the National Guard and the army and anyone else who would help is beyond my ability to understand. So how anyone could ever vote not to impeach him in the Senate would is mind blowing. What else do we have this for? If not this exact instance, he should have been arrested the next day. I did a little thing on the internet where I said, you know, I have five kids and if I told my son no parties this weekend and I come home on Sunday and the house is a wreck and he invited a thousand people over and the windows are broken and five people are seriously hurt. Do I punish him that night? Or do I wait seven days while he goes about his life to punish him. It's absurd that we haven't done anything yet.
9: So following Rosie's comment, I had the, oddly, the opposite reaction. I also suffer from anxiety, but it was a weird moment of calm because it's something I've expected for years. When you have the president of the United States targeting political opponents, calling them illegitimate, claiming that they they stole the election, repeatedly calling them un-American, Repeatedly associating them with the worst crimes possible, you're going to get a movement which Donald Trump now has created—a movement of people who think that the political his political opponents are traitors. If you use the term fascist, f- first of all, the f- the fascists know language matters. The fascists don't want to be called fascists. That's one reason to call them fascists. Uh, secondly. Uh, if you used the term fascist, you would not have all been at all been surprised by January 6th. You would have expected January 6th. And if you used the term fascist, you would have known that it's not members of the working class who are just members of the working class that were there. You would have expected a three time gold medalist in the Olympics to be there as he was. Keller, three time Olympic swimming gold medalist, was in the middle of the insurrectionist terroristic mob. There were people. What does from- that
8: mean to you? What does that mean to you? That, means- that he was there, that that they've reached and infiltrated into areas of, of uh, success and,
9: and commonality in America, that they're no longer just the KKK with hoods? Fascism means a cr- the KKK was was fascist, and the KKK yeah. cross- crossed classes. It means it means that there's going to be a lot of middle class people there. There's going to be rich people there. It's not a class movement. It's an ideological movement that is based on racism, that is based as no one needs to tell you better than this, Rosie, on on sexism, horrific violence against women, as you your case as an alarm bell rang across our nation. Uh, So if you use the term fascism the concept of fascism, then you know it's not a bunch of survivalists who are just anxious about losing their jobs. You know it's going to draw in people of all walks of life who who feel that the communists are going to take over their country, who feel love for the leader. So fascism leads you to expect a coup and it leads you to recognize that this is the end of the beginning, not the beginning of the end.
0: And that was Jason Stanley coming to an abrupt end. Next up are two scholars who have studied and written about evangelical Christians and Christian nationalism. First is Anthea Butler, professor of religion at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of Women in the Church of God in Christ. She's followed by Sarah Posner, an American journalist and author. She is the author of two books about the American Christian right. I hope to dispel
10: the fact that people think of them as moral agents in society. They're not, they're agents of power who use morality in society as a way to get what they want politically and socially. And I think that's the most important thing. I think for many people, you see evangelicals on television talking about religious freedom or talking about, we don't believe in abortion, we're pro-life and all these things. These are not just moral beliefs, they are political beliefs. And if you understand them as political beliefs that are being used and deployed to control a narrative, to gain power, to gain authority, then it makes a lot more sense to you. And it makes a lot more sense about the kinds of things that people have been wringing their hands about. Like, why do so many evangelicals support Donald Trump? Well, duh, it's not about Donald Trump. Donald Trump gave them everything they wanted. And I think that's really important to sort of understand in the scheme of things. It's, it's basically don't get snowed by all the things that they say about themselves. What they do is more important.
1: I wanted to shift more to the recent history, the January sixth coup attempt. It began with a prayer with yep. Trump's spiritual advisor, Paula White calling to God, to her words, let every adversary against democracy, against freedom, against life, against liberty, against justice, against peace, against righteousness, be overturned right now in the name of Jesus. End of her quote. And then Trump on that stage shortly Mm -hmm. after calling people to fight like hell. And hours later they did. They tore through the Capitol alongside white supremacist, fascist street fighters Proud Boys, Three Percenters, et cetera. White men wearing Jesus T-shirts, erected giant crosses, waved cross and emblazoned flags, screamed that they were doing it in the name of God and Christ as they climbed the walls, broke windows, beat and killed police officers. And once inside the Senate, they raised their arms in prayer for allowing, again, their words, not mine, the United States yeah. to be reborn. Sarah Posner and others have documented, as well as we have on the show, that instrumental role that Christian fascists, my words, played in this coup attempt. I'm wondering how and why you think it is that we're in a situation in which people who seize the Capitol were doing it in the name of religion and in particular in the name of Christianity.
10: They really believe God called them to do this. And this has been something that's been building for a long time. I mean, I think that people thought this was a surprise, it really wasn't, because lots of churches and organizations were sort of rolling up to this. And if you couple this with the stop the steal language about this, they thought that they were on a holy quest, that God called them to do this. But even more importantly than that, this is about Christian nationalism, and it's about a nationalism that's existed for a long time. And I think that it's been to our detriment as a public that we have not paid attention to the ways in which violence and nationalism and patriotism have come together to make this kind of a very potent stew in the hands of someone like Donald Trump. I mean, when you can say that Donald Trump was, as a lot of evangelicals said, God's man. He was King Cyrus, he was the one that was appointed. And then you have that man who they think is god's man saying that the election is stolen well of course people are going to go out there and and fight for him and do what they want but i think it's hits a deeper problem about evangelicals and that deeper problem is is that in the quest for power and authority in this country that they have lost their way and they've lost their way in terms of trying to think of themselves as religious actors and now they're religio-political actors who have set themselves up against the government. And that's really important because they think God is more important than the government, okay? So if you understand what they were doing on January 6th, they really believed that God called them to take down the Capitol and that they wanted to establish God's government. And God's government was the representative was Donald Trump. And that's hard for a lot of people to understand, but I think you need to understand it and be fearful and mindful of the fact that although January 6th failed, you still have a lot of people out here who embrace that belief. Let me just say, I think that evangelicals, like authority and they like authoritarian power. And so if you are listening to Refuse Fascism and you're trying to understand what this is, it's not that evangelicals are bad people. It's just that some of their theologies and beliefs and the people who have upheld the kinds of systems that they are structured around, will help bring in fascism if we are not careful. The whole idea that women are supposed to be subservient to men, that women can only be in certain kinds of roles because of complementarianism, that's a whole other kind of thing we'd have to talk about later. The ways in which they racialize things, the ways in which they have sacralized the flag, All of these things come together to make for a fascist kind of movement. And I think that a lot of people would like to think that, well, America's never going to go there because, you know, this didn't happen in Weimar Germany. This was very different. The German situation was very different than the American situation. But what we have is a ready made system that is understandable and intelligible to everyone. But most people don't understand how deeply the rot goes and how much this could upend a democracy. And I think that's really important. So the things that you see now in terms of discussions about critical race theory and all that, on the one hand, these are serious, but on the other hand, it's a way in which to get people up in arms about something so that you get them mobilized against everything.
1: I think that's a really interesting phenomenon that you brought up about how the Christian right has stood by Trump through this process, even in many ways where Pence was their man. He was part of their circles, their worlds for decades, decades. Mm-hmm. and he came to power through that world comes from that world from that world. he is right. that as opposed world. to trump, trump. sort of
11: globbed onto it in order to help him get elected and stay in power
1: what kind of rationalizations or thinking have you come across as to why those forces were okay with how close he came to being assassinated
11: I think something that's really important to understand about right-wing white evangelicalism and its relationship with Trump is that a lot of the cultural features of that world from a religious context got layered onto the political context with Trump. So what I mean by that is in that world... There is a lot of emphasis on submission to authority and submission to someone who is seen as not only being in a position of authority, but anointed by God to have that position of authority. So typically that would be the pastor of a church or a televangelist, and you're not supposed to question them. They have God's hand on them, they have God's anointing on them, and you are to submit to their authority. And I think it's important to note here that this is typically a man and submission to authority is also very gendered. What I see a lot when I've reported on Trump events or reported on these communities who support Trump is that they tend to look at him in the same way that people I've reported on who were in basically abusive relationships with their pastor, not necessarily sexually or physically abusive, but spiritually abusive often in cases. And I've interviewed a lot of people over the course of my career who'd been in these kinds of relationships with religious figures, that they felt like they could get out of this relationship, that the requirement that they submit to their authority was very strong, that if they bucked that authority, they'd be ostracized in their community, ostracized within it, or even ostracized from it. I feel like a lot of the support for Trump from these communities sort of mirrors that, that he is anointed by God, that you are to submit to his authority. And I feel like Pence, throughout his vice presidency, modeled that for everyone else because he was very submissive to Trump. And so he was basically modeling for the base, this is how you submit to this strongman that we have decided is God's anointed president. Another thing that really strikes me now in the age of, you know, them saying any coverage of anything of Trump's wrongdoing is fake news, Many years ago, I interviewed women who had been in these abusive relationships with their church or pastor, and more than one of them told me that when their local newspaper did investigative pieces about the pastor, oftentimes these were pastors who were very prominent in the community or had a lot of followers, and the newspaper would look into sexual wrongdoing or financial wrongdoing, and they said they just simply would not read it, that it was that's of Satan to read the newspaper that's coming against the pastor. And so again, I see that mirrored with their reaction to Trump. Oh, so like, I'm not going to read the New York Times or the Washington Post or watch CNN to find out what's going on with Trump because that's fake news, that's the deep state, that's all of these conspiracy theories. Having reported on those kinds of relationships and those kinds of communities gave me the ability to sort of see the relationship with Trump through that prism, through that lens. And I think it tells us a lot about something that seems mysterious to the rest of us, which is how can they look at all this evidence and still support him?
1: Can you talk about why it isn't cowardice? Why it, as you said, a vote to acquit isn't cowardice, it's fascism?
11: There is an element of cowardice to it, obviously, but by calling it just cowardice and not recognizing it as the complicity that allows fascism to function and thrive, it just papers over what's really going on here. Because I think if you call it cowardice, then it makes Trump seem like an aberration who's scary to these Republican lawmakers But once we get past this period, they won't be scared of him anymore because he's no longer in office. They won't be scared of his base because they'll start to not see him as having the bully pulpit because he's not president anymore and he doesn't have his Twitter anymore and so on and so forth. But these are real long lasting changes in our politics and the complete subversion of our democracy that has happened under Trump. Being complicit with that isn't just cowardice, it's being complicit with fascism. If you allow a leader who is seen by his base and your base as anointed by God and having to be defended no matter what, and that leader, basically orders an attack on your workplace and on the actual mechanics of our democracy, of our election, and nearly has you killed, and you are going to not hold him accountable, that's a lot more than just cowardice.
0: This is The Michael Slate Show, and we just heard from Anthea Butler, author and professor of religion at the University of Pennsylvania, and Sarah Posner, journalist and author. All the voices on today's show are from 2021, the Refuse Fascism Year in Review. The entire podcast, which is one hour and 30 minutes long, can be found at RefuseFascism.org. Once again, that's RefuseFascism.org. Or you can find the link on my social media. Now let's hear Jared Yates Sexton, an American author and political commentator, on the January 6th coup attempt, the subsequent acquittal of Trump in a sham impeachment trial, and the situation that follows. His comments are followed by those of Bandia Sonobia Lee, an American psychiatrist, and the editor of the dangerous case of Donald Trump. I want to add that right now, there is more and more evidence coming out about the widespread conspiracy that was behind January 6th, and what these scholars and activists are saying, and the insights they are bringing to the situation are crucial to understanding and putting all of this in context. So let's hear Jared Yates Sexton and Bandy Lee.
12: To begin, I just want to say that this is, of course, a political discussion, but simply to say the word politics right now is to somehow or another in in modern times to pretend like you're playing some sort of a game. And one of the things I've been very disturbed by over the last couple of weeks and particularly the last couple of days Has been this idea of whether or not this impeachment trial is smart politics or, you know, we we keep reading these articles now from people among the Democratic Party saying they're not so sure that they should have witnesses, they should spend a lot of time on this, considering there's a foregone conclusion what's going to happen. But when I say politics, I'm not talking about this game of politics. I'm not talking about what is smart, what's practical, what's going to make an agenda happen. What I'm talking about is how a group of disparate people come together and decide how to live in a shared society. And that's what's in danger right now. This is the actual problem that we're having, is that we have reached a point where shared society is in the middle of a political, social, and existential crisis. And I want to state very clearly, because there's been, for the past month and two days, there's been a concerted effort by politicians, media pundits to frame this whole thing as a weird aberration that took place on January 6th. And it just so happened that there was a riot that spilled into the U.S. Capitol. And it's really terrible what happened, but we, you know, we've moved past it and we've turned the page and Donald Trump is behind us and now we can unify and move on. That's unfortunately a fairy tale we have a real problem in this country. And I wanna go ahead and say first and foremost, what happened on January 6th. And this is the way history will look at it if we have history. The president of the United States of America, after fomenting one conspiracy theory after another for years, and then engaging in a fascistic white supremacist, white supremacist paranoid conspiracy theory, sicked his radicalized followers on his own vice president and the legislative branch of the United States of America. He declared war on the government of the United States and tried to carry out a violent coup. We were incredibly lucky that he didn't move further. Part of it has to do with the fact that Donald Trump is an incompetent coward. We're incredibly lucky that basically the first fascistic president, openly fascistic president of the United States, was an incompetent coward. The problem is that Donald Trump, through his gnashing of teeth and wild indiscriminate thrashing, has exposed one weakness after another in democratic institutions and the democratic machinery of the United States of America. On top of that... We have to look at the fact that Donald Trump is a symptom. He's not the disease. There's something that's been going on in this country since its very founding through white supremacist, misogynistic, hyper-capitalistic exploitation, and it has reached the end of the line.
13: As you know, my position is rather heavy in that I'm quite let down by the acquittal, not just the acquittal itself, but by the lack of a truly vigorous fight on the part of those who were in a position now to do so, having majority in both chambers of Congress as well as the presidency. And of course, I can see why they saw perhaps little use in pursuing this when conviction would not be possible anyhow because of the position of many of the Republicans senators, but I look at things from a psychological point of view, and there were many things that could have been done, and many things that were, in fact, done on this round that made an effective trial very close, and yet they decided to shut it down, which was very disappointing for me. In terms of the influence on society, we have now already seen that the removal of Donald Trump was not enough, because it was not a forced removal, and it was not a reckoning of his presidency, but rather uh continuation of enabling in many ways. And so we see a lot of his effects, what many of us are calling Trumpism, continue. And I believe that's very much the march toward fascism that you've been trying
0: to fight. That was Bandy Lee and before her, Jared Yates Sexton. Now we're going to hear from two people who are talking about the widespread fascism denial that's been going on for over five years. First is Paul Street, writer and activist, who was on our show a couple of weeks ago. He is followed by Dahlia Lithwick, lawyer, writer, and journalist. She is a contributing editor at Newsweek and senior editor at Slate. And she is the author of the piece, The Price of No Consequences for Trump.
14: I think for starters, there's some intellectual work to do. We've got to work on people about the denial that they have about calling what this Trump experience was. It was pre—it was at the very least pre-fascism. This was a fascistic presidency. We actually have a fascist movement, and I, I think it's important for people to become educated about what that word means and get through this notion that it can't happen here. We've got a lot of work to do in terms of transcending American exceptionalism, this belief that we are somehow ordained by God and or history. Uh, And our constitutional tradition to be permanently free of an authoritarian right wing type of situation in this country, we're not. And we just had a really remarkable and scary brush in this last election with fascism. I I have the very distinct impression that but for COVID-19. Trump would be settling in for a second term, possibly after the bloody suppression of urban rebellions, a repression that would have been engaged in by um, urban white police officers and some armed forces quite gleefully after an election that was much closer than the, than the one we actually had.
15: I mean, I think in some sense, your podcast single-handedly makes the larger point that I was trying to make, which is... You know, the thing that people like Amy Siskind or Bandy Lee or the myriad people over Masha Gessen, Jason Stanley and Tim Snyder have been trying to make for the past four and a half years, which is this is not normal. And to remind people that the heart wants what the heart wants and what the heart wants is normal. No matter what was happening for the last four and a half years, I think the ability to of most people to just integrate it and move on is shocking. And in some sense, what I'm describing is almost a mental health phenomenon, that you can normalize anything. And things that horrified us, the Muslim ban, the first week of the administration, at some point, we were okay with it. Family separations, we were out of our minds. We were marching. And then we were okay with it, forcing migrant teenagers at the border to keep their pregnancies. At some point, the shock of all of these things dissipates. And then, as we said, the goalposts have moved, right? Now this is normal. And our brains long for normal. And so I think one of the things I was trying to say is, I felt like I spent the four years of the Trump era as a legal correspondent, setting myself on fire, you know, going into the green room at MSNBC and trying not to rip my hair out and scream and trying over and over and over again to say, this is not normal. This is not OK. And being you know, I use the word gaslit advisedly, just constantly and consistently being told, not just by Bill Barr, but by folks on the left that, you know, we're hysterical, we're overreacting, you know, calm down. He's not really going to stop vote by mail. Okay, maybe he's going to try to stop vote by mail, but it's not going to be with the complicity of Bill Barr. Oh, maybe with the complicity of maybe he's going to try to set aside the election results. Maybe he's going to try to foment a coup. But at every turn, we are being told, like, come, on you are really overreacting here and i felt as though having spent four years being told it's not that dire please stop worrying you know all the anxiety is just feeding into the hysteria to have that directed at you again Post Trump, by folks at the Biden Justice Department, by, as you say, some of the Democratic leadership that's like, oh, you know, don't overreact. What Georgia and Texas are trying to do in suppressing the vote isn't that bad. Who doesn't have voter ID? It's so enervating when it comes from your own side. And I think that was really what I was reacting to that having spent four years essentially being told, you're completely nuts. None of this is going to come about. Oops, it came about. But- move on. It's really, really maddening when it comes from the very self same people that you entrusted to fix it. And so I think that was the gist of what I was trying to articulate in that piece was gaslighting is gaslighting, whether it comes from inside the house or outside the house. And that, in fact, when you are the Justice Department and you're doing the wrong thing in Eugene Carroll, you're doing the wrong thing uh, with the Mueller report. You're doing the wrong thing with investigation leaks of either journalists or members of Congress, if you are consistently doing the wrong thing, then say, hey, we've chosen to do the wrong thing. But to turn around and say, hey, America, you're overreacting. That's just not going to work. But one of the reasons I wrote that piece was just to have this sort of creed occur of I spent four years being told this is normal. Get used to it. I'm not prepared to spend the next four years hearing the same thing from my side.
0: That was Dahlia Lithwick, author of The Price of No Consequences for Trump. And before that, Paul Street, who is an author of many pieces that continue to put forward the danger of fascism that we face and the need for people to stand up. Now, for the last segment of the show, we'll hear Walden Bello, a Filipino academic, environmentalist, and social worker, on Trump, Duterte, and the development of fascism internationally.
1: I think that point is really essential in that History doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly does echo. And I think that the reality that fascism foments and relies upon this xenophobia, this white supremacy, this misogyny, and then uses that to help bludgeon the democratic norms and ultimately erase civil liberty. I think that this is really important.
16: Yes. First of all, the way that the key features of fascism come together are very unique in each case. As I said, if you're expecting a spitting image of Adolf to come along, you'll be waiting forever. Whereas, in fact, a lesser figure than Adolf has already come to power. Okay? But second, you may not have the features of fascism unrolled all at once. Let me give you two examples. In the United States, it was not till the aftermath of the elections of 2020 that you saw the full fascist characteristic or reality of Donald Trump come out. You know, basically he was out to subvert and overthrow the electoral system. So before that, people had just thought that okay, yeah, he's like this, he's like that, he had all this fake news. They did not think that he would go to the extent of trying to overturn an election. So, yes, therefore it doesn't all come together in one fell swoop at the beginning of a regime is one of the reasons why people were late in recognizing that in the person by like Trump. On the other hand, if you look at a person like Duterte, right from the get-go, he started the most fearsome feature of his fascist rule, which was the drug war and the killing, extrajudicial execution of people who were uh, suspected of being drug users. And in the space of three years, over 20,000 people had been subjected to extrajudicial execution. Immediately, the most horrible feature of fascism, which is the systematic persecution of a certain sector of the population, not only imprisoning them, but killing them, sort of just unrolled very, very quickly. That's why I call it was a blitzkrieg fascism. Now, the effect was a bit different than in the United States. The effect was to stun the population. Is this really happening? And then people began to recover their senses that this was in fact happening. You know, it was, can he really be doing this? And so, but even that, when people began to ask themselves, why is he getting away with it? And he was able to get away with it, not only because he stunned people, but because there was a base he was appealing to, people who felt that drugs and criminals uh, were the cause of society's degeneration, crisis in the Philippines. And not only that, People were so frustrated with the lack of social reform that although they might have disagreed with Duterte's execution, maybe they thought, oh, but maybe what the country really needs is an iron hand to set things together. So by the time that he was in his second year, there was already consolidated a base for fascism in the Philippines. So the point is that the features of a fascist personality or a fascist movement may come together differently, and they do not just unfold in one fell swoop. So I just wanted to use these two examples to show you, you know, how, in the one case in the United States, there was a protracted kind of recognition of a fascist. And in the case of the Philippines, the fact that the fascists went immediately to the, to the most horrible crime, which was extrajudicial execution of thousands, had the effect of stunning people So that it took them several months to recover and realize that, hey, this guy is the real thing, the real fascist. It had different sort of effects on the population. The point here, when it comes to the United States, is there are already pre-existing conditions, which is the racist democracy that the United States has had. And then there was the neoliberal impact on American white working class jobs that The Democratic Party was seen as having promoted along with the Republican Party, of course. And then thirdly, the sense that whites were going to become a minority fairly soon because the demographics favored colored people. So I think those three things came together. And what Trump did was to bring those things together. In his rhetoric. It's even hard to call it an ideology in a formal sense, but he was able to bring together these fears and resentments together to consolidate that base that he had. I won't spend too much time with Duterte, but in his case, I think that he came out as a, and people saw in him that he was not only somebody who promised to eliminate crime by killing people. During the elections, people probably thought he was just exaggerating, but they said, okay, crime is a big problem. Drugs is a big problem. The only guy who can eliminate this is Duterte. The second thing is there were people who may have disliked his language, disliked his rhetoric, and didn't really think that he should just focus on crime and drugs, but felt that, oh, this guy's an authoritarian figure and our democracy hasn't been working, maybe Duterte is the guy who will be able to eliminate corruption, okay? and he might be the guy who can discipline the elites who have been so selfish. So I think basically those things came together within the Philippine electorate, and especially the Philippine middle class. The Philippine middle class, back in the 1980s, it was part of the movement that overthrew Marcos, the previous dictator, But by 2016, 30 years, the kind of democracy that emerged in 1986 had not delivered. So these resentments and frustrations and fear of crime all came together to produce a base for Duterte that then his followers proceeded to consolidate once he came to power. So that's the case with both, in both the Philippines and the United States. One must not underestimate that base. Because although, for instance, in the Philippines right now, Duterte has been screwing up in terms of responding to the COVID-19 pandemic, and he's being seen as too friendly with China. You know, despite the fact that things are not going that well for him, I would not underestimate his hold on a significant sector of the population. Just like in the case of Trump, 11 million more people voted for him in 2020 than in 2016. So that means you know he may have lost the elections, but he has consolidated his hold over the Republican Party and has now a very powerful instrument. He may or may not win in 2024, but let's face it, what we have now in the United States is a sharply divided electorate. The way that I would characterize the United States is there is an informal civil war that is taking place there. And on one side of that are the Trump forces who are willing to believe anything he says and are his willing accomplices at this point in time. And then, of course, we also look at India, we look at Hungary, we look at Brazil, and you know we find many of the same features. And one of the things that is very, very striking when you look at the philippines india brazil just take the global south is the way the middle class has ceased to be a democratic force but it's now a force for supporting authoritarian regime that's very definitely different from the role of the middle class in the 1980s in this part of the world
0: this is the michael slate show and that was walden bello academic and activist on trump duterte and the global threat of fascism and once again you've been hearing the voices from 2021 the refuse fascism year in review the entire podcast, which is one hour and 30 minutes long, can be found at RefuseFascism.org. Once again, that's RefuseFascism.org. Or you can find the link on my social media. And this brings us to the end of yet another show. I want to thank my assistant producer, Henry Carson, and engineer, Wendell Handy, and all of you for tuning in. You can write to me at mslate at Once again, that's mslate at Happy New Year.